So I want this session to be a little more interactive. Uh, that's why I see I'd moved from up here down to here. This is interactive space here. It makes me more personal with you. You know, and I'm not a professor. I'm just one of you. I'm part of the church. We're trying to figure things out. Uh, <clears throat> because you guys are such a mission-focused church, uh, I want this session to be uh, a workshop for you. So I, I will give you some information to help you understand what's going on out there. But uh, there is a method to my madness, and people do say I'm mad methods. Uh, Jim Hall's been saying that since we were roommates. What, what I want to do during this session is, is uh, for us to grapple together with stuff. Because you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to judge you and assume I know where you're at in missions, because uh, I just don't know. But I do know, as a researcher, a trend, mission trends researcher and strategist, I do know roughly what the state of the church in the United States, where, what, where our church is at in missions. Uh, and that's not saying we're all exactly alike. Some are stronger, some are weaker. Uh, when Gloria and I were living in Seattle, we were involved with Marshall Church there and Driscoll's Church. And they were moving away from global missions altogether uh, because they thought, uh, well, they were smart people. And they went, well, it's pretty much done. You know, churches have been planted everywhere. Just let those churches thrive now. We're going to focus on Seattle. Uh, I, I uh, spent some time advising Mariners. Uh, missions, Mariners Church Missions Committee, uh, and they're, I love the Missions Committee. It was a multicultural committee, uh, people from Kenya and Mexico, and, you know, it was very cool. But I talked to them, too, and they were making some strides, but from what I've seen, there's a disconnect, and I think the disconnect's intentional. I think God has disconnected us. I think he's kind of going, like, pull the plug, hold on. You guys did great. Now I'm interpreting for God, so I hope I don't mess up. <laughs> You guys did great. Spread the gospel. It's all over the world now. Uh, but you're not the major sending country anymore, you're not Americans. And you don't even have the majority of Christians anymore. Uh, you're really uh, a less significant power in missions, global missions these days. How does that sound? Huh? Disappointing. Yeah, again, I, I get a feeling this church is not the norm, so I'm painting the norm across the United States. But that's what I would say. What happened? I would say it's okay that you're not in center stage anymore, you or we. It's okay that we're not, you know, the big sending country anymore uh, because the work's done. That's why I, that's why I applauded God at the end. You know, Western Mission did what God called us to do. It surged the gospel throughout the world for the last 200 years. Just surge it. And then the last 60 years, surge it again in Bible translations. Everybody can worship me in their own language and culture. Now we're in the globalized period of mission. That means the whole church is now working together as a unified group. This is, I get shivers saying that because I've seen it with my own eyes. For a long time, parachurch agencies and denominations kind of did their own thing. We all just did our own thing, and it was fine. We did pretty well with our own thing. But in the global period of missions now, we can't just do our own thing anymore. 
it'll be totally ineffective. So now the operating word in missions these days is mutuality. It doesn't matter if you're in Nigeria or, you know, um, uh, Latin America or India. It doesn't matter where you are. Everybody is equipped now and provided with things from God to finish his mission. So all I could tell is the stage of mission we're in right now is God's just bringing in the last. And it's major religions. So there, the far less believers in Muslim, Muslim, Hindu, and Buddhist societies than any other culture. There's far less believers in those groups. And as I said, the difference earlier was we, you know, 200 years, we, we got the, you know, we picked the low-hanging fruit were the animist groups who, who didn't like their religion. It was oppressive. They're going like, man, I'm all in. Give me the gospel. The major religions, it's just the opposite. They love their religion because it's, it's about self-righteousness. It's about making yourself better. It's about you on top. And then they're steeped for thousands of years in tradition. So it, they are the last unreached group, and they're everywhere. Uh, ironically, they're here in Garden Grove. They're in South Seattle. There's Somalis in South Seattle that our church, when Gloria and I had a church in Seattle, we related to Somali Muslims who have immigrated and were living next door to us. Nigerians are here, pastoring American churches, Africans, Anglican. The biggest Anglican church in the United States, South Florida, is pastored by a a Tanzanian. (laughs) So that's the church. So let's see here. Yeah, world religions requires... Cultural insiders. So I was really relieved in my research to realize, oh, the last unreached groups are the major religions in their places like the Middle East, dangerous areas of the world you can't go into and your life is threatened. But I was so relieved to find out that God's saying, that's okay, you don't have to go in. I've already started my church in Iran, in Iraq, Pakistan. I've already already started it in, in Myanmar. I've already started it in all these countries. There's already a church there. There's believers there. They're, they're small, but they're started. So they're going to do it, as far as I could tell. I was really relieved because you know I worked in a large Muslim country for 20 years, but Indonesians, they're so easygoing people. It wasn't a big deal. But some of those dangerous places that our organization is partnering with uh, is pretty crazy. So here's what I found out. People, Muslims, and this this is through, you know, pretty good research, not mine, others. Muslims come to Christ in dreams. I, God just does that. I, you know, in the West, we're going, yeah, right, really, we're we're materialistic, scientific work country. We don't really think God speaks in dreams. But I have seen enough testimonies and read books and talked to people who said, yeah, well, God appeared to me in a dream. And he said, seek the book. And uh, so I sought the book, the Bible. And I started reading the Bible. And I believed. And then places where Bible translation has occurred, and this is a really interesting part to me, where Bible translation has occurred in Muslim cultures, they don't get dreams from God. They're connected to the Bible from, from 
Muslim believers, Muslim background believers, Hindu background believers, are coming to them and sharing scripture with them in their own language and culture. And God's not speaking to them in dreams. That's, that's really weird, isn't it? It's like if the word's there, God is present, his word is going to go out from the local church and start affecting people. If the word's not there and there's nothing going on, God kickstarts things. He dreams. He tells them dreams. And I was saying that to a group in uh, Costa Mesa a couple years ago, and we had a, uh, a Skype connection with some folks. And at the end, this Persian lady comes walking up to me from Iran. She goes, that's exactly how my mother became a Christian. <laughs> I'm going, whoa, thank you for that. So God is doing some things. He is moving amongst these areas now. He's, he's stirring things up. The Holy Spirit is doing his work. Churches have been planted. But here's a challenge. In a lot of those places, there's like 3% Christian. The problem is population growth alone will outstrip the church growth if something doesn't change. It's just the church will grow, but the population of Muslims will grow through birth, and they'll be, and, they, and un, unbelieving, you know, non-Christian Muslim background people will can increase far more than the Christians will if we keep doing the same things. So everywhere we go, we say, yeah, there's a church, but they're not going to be able to keep up with population growth alone. They have to have better strategies. Something's got to change in order for the word to go out faster and to have greater penetration uh, because a human just cannot reach, you know, 100 million Muslims in a country. 3% Christians not going to do it. India, 3% Christians not going to do it, even though 3% is, what, 600 million or something. <laughs> you know, a billion people there, so it's not going to do it. So right now, here's the problem. The West is still pretty involved in missions. We're spending $13 billion a year in missions still, uh, 73% of the workforce, but it's all going to Christianized lands. It's all going to places where the church is everywhere. And we're, you know, so, some of us are going like, why, why is the church in the West cranking so much money into Christian lands, you know, where there's churches and leadership and capability and technological capability? Why are we still doing that? See, here's a problem with the church in the West. We, we still perceive the old mission field to be the same mission field. And the mission field has been reached. So why are we spending $13 billion a year going there? For the unreached groups, and that's really the major world religious groups in, South, in Asia, Central Asia, Eurasia, you know, we're spending, the church is spending about $250 million a year. So we're way out of we're way out of balance money wise. So that's a question I would ask the church: Where is your money going? Are you spending it on Christianized lands where there's lots of believers who could be doing work? Are you sending missionaries over? And no, again, this is not about you guys, but I, I'm going to step on toes, as somebody said I was going to say. I didn't know I was going to do that, but it sounded like an invitation to me. So, <laughs> so I'm going to step on some toes, you know. Uh, churches out there, and I've asked them, where are your missionaries working? What are they doing? Is that a good use of church finances right now? Are you having the best effects with that? Is that really going to accelerate the completion of the task, or is it just maintaining what we've been doing for so long? That's a question I like to ask. stirs a lot of uh, interesting responses. Now, here's an interesting stat. 
people who share most anything online, meaning their personal lives. I don't know if you can see that too well, but Saudi Arabia has the highest rate of social media use and sharing. Uh, India is number two, Indonesia number three, China number four. United States, the world average is in the green there, and that's the United States. You think we're social? We're nothing compared to Indonesians. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and those are the countries that have a lot of the last remaining translation needs, and those are the countries that need, uh, you know, the, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam. You know, those people are already connected into the globe, and they're already aware of stuff. Uh, so that's a hint. So that's the workers these days. It's going to be Indians reaching Indians. And they are doing that in India in a big way. Chinese reaching Chinese. Cubans reaching Cubans. Do you wonder why I put that one in, Cubans? You don't hear that one too often. But you know what's going on right now because the opening. You know what God's been doing in Cuba for the last 10 years? There's a huge church growth has been happening in Cuba, indigenous missions. Spanish-speaking missionaries have been over there. And I know uh, the leader of one of them who has, spends a lot of time there. And the church has been growing in Cuba evangelical church because they're just dying for hope and uh, he told me the other day as I was talking to him he got called in by the government and he was going oh no here it comes because they've already kicked out a lot of agencies they said we want you to ask for more visas he goes we're going to be cutting back on all these other mission agencies here but we want you to stay because we like your model we think you're stable you're going you help people you serve people. You bless people. We have a big issue coming right now with the opening of Cuba. We need you here. This is a government official telling them that. But don't tell anybody, I'm talking to you. Just go ahead and apply for more visas. That, I just heard that a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, God's moving. What is the role of the church today? I'm just going to pause here because <clears throat> I've just thrown out some statistics and stuff. And just, if there's a question, a comment, challenge me. Jim does it all the time, so I'm sure you guys will. Any th- any thoughts on your mind about anything you've heard this morning? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, short-term missions is an interesting phenomenon right now. Short-term missions gets criticized a lot by professional missionaries and missiologists. You know, missiologists, those are like people who study mission strategy. Trinity International University. It's in my book, too, by the way. I keep plugging my book, but, you know, there's a lot in there. It's a short book, by the way. It's only this thick. If you read that, you're going to see, you're going to get a rapid understanding of some stuff. And and we talk about short-term missions in there. And it's a phenomenon, and and I didn't jump on the bandwagon of criticizing short-term missionaries as as ineffective as they seem to be, uh, for one simple reason. It's a rejection of traditional missions. To me, it's a sign of the times. People want to be directly involved. They want to get out there. They want to interact. They want to get their hands dirty. They don't want to just write a check to a church. They want to know what's going on. So it's a rejection, and missions are not growing right now. They're stagnated, but short-term missions is going through the roof right now. So to me, that's an interesting transitional thing. So if you want to go on a short-term mission, that, that's fine. Just know you're 
you're disrupting right now. You're disrupting the status quo, but we don't know what's next. So I'm going to say, yeah, go out and be loved by them and get out there and see it. But go as a learner, not as somebody who's going to rescue or fix things. Go as a learner. Bring it back to your church uh, and tell your church what you saw. To me, that's the most powerful role for short-term missions right now. Other comments or questions? Well, wow, that's a that's a really interesting question. You can have a whole that's a whole topic, but uh, yeah, huh? Repeat the question: Is there a parallel between how God had called the Jews and then how God had called the the way you said it, Western Church, as His loved, beloved group to go out and be a witness? Is that a good right in our own areas? Yeah, well, uh, the church will not go away, no matter what people say. It's not going away. It weakens in one place, and it surges in another place, and it's orthodox in its beliefs. Not orthodox like Greek, but, you know, virgin birth, trinity, all that stuff, sin. And then it weakens there. It sprouts up in another place, you know, and and Satan's going around like, boom, boom, he hits it here. You know, like the gopher, remember that gopher thing? It's not going to go away, but it's getting big, and it's going to surge. So I think, you know, God used the United States, and he uses, the, uses us here still today. So that's what I said. The church now, missions is everywhere. Uh, but I'm going to back up and say, if you're going to help finish the task, then you've got to reach out to the major religions here in Garden Grove, across the United States, and out to the world to still be effective. And the why you need to stay connected with the world is you need to know what God's doing out there so you understand what he's doing here. You can't, if you live like this, you're not going to get it. You need the global understanding because God is doing a <laughs> global thing right now. I don't know if that answered your question, but he is still faithful to those who are ready to keep serving him. Oh, yeah. Good. That's also in my book. <laughs> it's a it's a quick read. No, actually, I had a book come out this week, a different book, and we have that, we covered the topic on immigration. Absolutely, yeah. I love I love the immigration story. God is bringing the gospel. He's spreading the gospel through immigration. I mean, he always has, but now he's doing it in a big way. Uh, so he's doing two things. He's spreading the gospel of the immigration, and he's bringing the Muslim Somalis to Seattle. And then they're interacting with Christians and becoming saved. And then when, when people get saved in the urban centers, that word goes straight out to their homes and villages where they came from. I don't care if they're on another continent. It gets out. So the urban center is a key to mission strategy these days. If you really want to have a big impact on finishing the Great Commission, uh, you need an urban focus. Uh, there's a there's a mission that focuses on Muslim ministry. They started in the 70s in an area nearby here. I'm not going to give more information out because I'm going to criticize them. <laughs> I, I love them, but I'm going. And I, I had some time with them. I said, well, so why are you still trying to send Americans to these little isolated Muslim villages in the Middle East? 
Well, because that's where the unreached people are. I'm going, yeah, but it's so hard, and they've got to learn the language, and they're going to be in a village, and they might not be there very long. Why don't you send them to Delhi? <laughs> you know, or why don't you send them to you know, one of the major regions? And they can be friends with all those people in a cafe. <laughs> that's the point. Immigration. It's, they're here. They're there. Where are you? Are you still doing the same old thing? You, not you, Village Church. You, the church. So immigration's huge. I think God's totally behind it. And the article we wrote, by the way, is trying to help people not be so angry and down on, on immigration. Uh, you know, most of those people are just fleeing tyranny. They're ready to hear the gospel. Syrians who are really suffering are totally ready to hear the gospel. Uh, Muslims are ready to hear the gospel, the ones that are getting beaten and killed and chased out. Of course, like Donald Trump said, there are a few that sneak in and do other things, but that's, a, that's not the majority. <laughs> Others. Where? I see pointing fingers, but I don't see a hand. <laughs> Somebody's being volunteered. I couldn't hear you really, really well. Oh, Chrislam's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's possible. Here, here, that's been a hot topic for a while. Maybe I'll try to shed a little bit of light on it without causing a riot. No. <laughs> uh, it's a sign of the times. Remember what we said about monolithic religion in 451? Well, Right now, you have people coming to faith as Muslims, as Hindus, uh, as Buddhists. Now, in the West, we have a monolithic understanding of the Bible and faith and salvation, and it's from an American perspective. So we assume if you're Muslim, you're going to become like a Western American. I hope not. but uh, And you're going to dress like us and look like us and have the same values. And that's kind of harsh on forcing people to change their culture. So we're not saying when a Muslim stays in their own culture and they call themselves that or Muslim, we call them Muslim background believers. There's a lot of stuff in Muslim culture that's not has to do with Islam. It's culture. In Buddhist, it's culture. It's reverence for your family. It's, it's family relationships. It's honoring stuff. There's good stuff in these cultures that God's created. We just see the mess because of, of a self-righteous religion that's oppressive. Uh, so when a Christian who has been a Muslim, becomes a Christian, they're going to stop, they're going to worship Christ, they're going to honor God, they're going to obey the Bible, but they want to stay in their culture and not put on a plaid shirt and play Calvary Chapel music from the 70s. I'm I'm serious, I saw that in Indonesia. They give up Muhammad, They they see that Christ is God, they understand the Trinity for the first time, that it's one God, not three. Uh, and they start practicing their faith. But it is a controversial thing. Some people say you should leave it all together, and maybe in some cases you should. I know a pastor uh, who happens to minister to, to the deaf community in Egypt who had a dream, became a believer, and went back into his culture, very dangerous. But he said, well, 
but my relatives are here. I need to live Christ out here. So I need to go to their mills. You know, I need to hang out with them at the mosque. But he's there as a, as a Christian now because he wants to reach his own people. He took his life in his own hands to do, to do it. He had to flee several times. So I know that's complicated, but, again, just remember, we don't want syncretism. We don't want people taking the gospel and making it something else. That's definitely no. But we don't want the Chalcedon people forcing a monolithic religion on everybody. Remember, Christ created all those cultures and all those languages to be redeemed by him. So when you go to Revelation 7-9, there's going to be Muslim background believers there, and you're going to be thrilled they're there. There'll be Hindu background believers, Buddhist background believers, animists. There'll be Nigerians. There'll be a few saved uh, atheists, maybe a few. Even the atheists are here? Well, they repented. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that question because that's a, that's a big topic right now. I, I would just encourage you not to judge too quickly, but make sure, you know, it really is the gospel they're living out and not a facade of something else. And don't reject them if they call themselves a Muslim background believer. If they start sounding like, a little weird and you can't find it in the Bible, then, then you can say, hey, oh, yeah, well. Yeah. Yeah. And it is it's a journey, too. you got to give them time. It's a journey. It's got a lot, got a lot to grapple with. The church where uh, Gloria and I were at, a small church, it was a Marshall church plant in South Seattle. I told you the Somalis. Well, no, actually, we invited the Redmond Mosque to come and, and have a dialogue with us. The Redmond Mosque, you know, that's where Microsoft is. We picked, like, the, you know, the impressive one. Turns out the chief imam at that mosque was from Indonesia. And I didn't know that. So we speak Indonesian. We invited him to come. We had a dialogue to get to know each other. Each Everybody got to present. It was pretty amazing. And then about 10 to 6, they said, uh, we really got to stop and have our prayer time. You have to do that if you're a Muslim. We're going, oh, okay, we'll just stop. We'll go have coffee, do your prayer, then we'll resume. I don't know. It didn't seem like a big deal to me. We got in big trouble with the local churches for doing that, the, the mega churches. Uh, we got criticized. We were in the paper. Even Mark Driscoll said, what, are you, what the heck are you guys doing over there? <laughs> we're going, uh, loving our neighbors. They're from Somalia. If they hadn't come here, they'd never hear the gospel. You know? You're defiling your church building. We're going, really? It used to be a drinking club. (laughs) (laughs) Three years ago, we bought a drinking club. (laughs) And some of the people used to drink there got saved, and now they go there for church. So here's Muslims having their first encounter with Christ in the drinking club. We didn't have the drinks out, but... Yeah, if you want to do, if you want to get invo- involved in Bible translation, talk to Chris. We have short-term projects. Doesn't like it, but we got him. <laughs> he doesn't like it. No, he doesn't. But so we got him. Okay, that's the reality. So we yeah. are. So no, come talk to me. No, I said earlier, go on a short-term trip. Absolutely, spend the money, but go to learn. And and God will God will show you if you're out there. I believe. But go to for a completely go to help. I mean, 
build a building, dig a well, whatever, help an orphanage. That's all good stuff. But while you're there, just going like, God, show me what, what's going on. Show me what you're doing. Show me my role in the scheme of things here. But uh, you can also, I would recommend churches uh, spending more time doing research and aligning with organizations that are building capacity for those local indigenous churches to grow and be empowered and, and scale up. You know, the best investment is where? Where you can have the greatest growth and greater impact. So investment in Kenya and Uganda, I would say, is flat. There's so many Christians there. They're so sharp. I would say an investment in uh, a Middle Eastern country or in China or in Southeast Asia is going to go like this because you're going to have greater results with your money. And I think the parallel of the talents said something about doing, having good results with your money. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if that helps, but uh, just ask God to show you, but just realize it's all changed now and, and what can you do differently. Uh, there's lots of things you could do, though, to serve. Uh, just remember, is it going to really better advance the mission or is it just going to keep things kind of flat? That's my my challenge. Jim. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, thank you. I'll give you your twenty-five dollars later. So. <laughs> no, it's a great question as usual from Jim. He's a very insightful person. The internet is, is it, yeah. Geez. Debbie's going. He is. <laughs> it's so much fun to be here and give my old friends a hard time. Do you know how many? Th- I've gotten payback on so much this Sunday. So. <laughs> it's been wonderful. Cathartic, really. <laughs> uh, question. The Internet is a big deal, as I said earlier. And there's actually a lot of ministries that are connecting and sharing the gospel and building a community with people in Saudi Arabia, with people in Indonesia, with people all over. They're actually having fellowship. They're sharing the gospel. Uh, they're sharing materials. People are downloading stuff. So here's how the gospel is going out now. Uh, it's going out like crazy right now. So you have... Faith comes by hearing. They do the recordings of Bibles and New Testaments. Uh, you have the Jesus Film Project that dubs the Jesus Film movie in local languages. And then you have uh, oral uh, audio translations uh, that Faith Comes By Hearing already does that. And then you have uh, the print translation that Wycliffe and Seed Company and others are doing. And all this stuff is stored on the cloud. And there's one app now. And you can click on that app, and you find your language no matter where you are. You click on that app. You can now read the Bible, hear the Bible, and view the Bible all at the same time. So what I mean is you can hear the audio in your language. You can watch the Jesus film, which gives the historical context, really important. When they watch that funky old movie from the 70s, Lights go on. They just kind of go, oh, my gosh, is that? Oh, is that what that means? That's why the house is flat. We always thought Peter was praying on the top of the sago palm thing, and that was absurd, <laughs> you know. And they're going, oh, the houses were flat in those days. Oh, I get that. Oh, that's what Jesus looked like. They're Jesus. You know? <laughs> no, Jesus didn't look like that. That's what's happening now, and it's through the Internet. So right now people are downloading like crazy. They're accessing the gospel from the hardest to reach places from the Internet. And they're doing it with safety and security. 
And then they're sharing their little SD cards, or they don't do Bluetooth because it's too risky. Uh, they're sharing their little SD cards with their friends who put it in their phone and, and unload the gospel, and then they read it, and then they're sharing it. Now, this is a true story. You guys are, are, are reaching the Berber, right? This is, these are Tuareg, that's right. The Tuareg are, are you know, nomadic people in North Africa, and their one number one criteria when they would move from place to place is, is their, where's the water? Okay, we're going to move there because there's good water there. Now their number one criteria is, can we get a good cell phone signal there? I'm serious. If we can't get a good cell phone signal, we're not going. Okay, cell phone signal, water, we're there. Because they go there, and then people have these little charge stations. They charge you a dollar, and then they recharge their cell phones. Then they get on, and then they share stuff, music and stuff with their friends. And then they're downloading the gospel. See, so that's why you got to keep doing Bible translation, because they don't have their language yet. They can't, get, they can't access it. So everything's, everything's flowing. Just picture the Internet and God's Word in multimedia formats just flowing right now all over the planet. And by the way, it's the same in the United States. So when you read a survey that Bible use is way down, as Barna says, ask the question, what do you mean by Bible use? Are people reading it? Uh, no, that's down. Are they listening to it? That's way up. People are podcasting the word like crazy right now. How they engage with the word is just different. So, you know, Barna is asking the wrong questions, in my opinion. I don't know if you know who Barna is, but they're in research. Okay, so that's that's the Internet. Any other questions? we got a few more, a little bit of time left. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's still the way you said it, but uh, which means, you know, what's the strategy these days if that big firewall that they set up is there? You know, how do you interact with them? Uh, we had that conversation at Mariners uh, with the missions committee there, that same question. And, but, you know, we we're, I was asking them, well, what, you know, you can't just go on campus. And then the students you get, they're already thinking enlightenment, enlightenment rationalism. A lot of them have, have huh? Repeat the question. You got a lot of students come to universities here, but the university has this big firewall up against Christians. You can't just come on campus and interact with them and, you know, set up a prayer booth or something. Uh, actually, you can. There's a lot of things you can do that you have constitutional rights to do. It's just that people think they can't. Uh, there's a lot of things. You can actually be a, have a campus presence, but we don't have time. I, I can connect you with Liberty Institute. It'll tell you exactly how to have, have a campus presence. They're constitutional lawyers. <laughs> You'd be amazed what you can do on a public university campus. Private ones, a little bit more challenging, like USC, but there's still constitutional rights you have. Uh, so I'll connect you with that. But so the conversation we were having with Mariners was, what are you going to do with all these university UCI people? You look at UCI, it's your neighbor, all these people coming from China and Asia and all this. What are you going to do with them? And where do they meet? You know, where do they go after class? You know, they go to these coffee houses, tea houses, these sorts of restaurants. Uh, Irvine, near the airport, you know, has a huge area where students hang out in restaurants, you know. So, you know, don't go to Golden Corral. <laughs> go to one of those restaurants. Start visiting those restaurants on a regular basis. People are totally friendly. Start getting to know them. Uh, you know, and, and the gospel functions better through hospitality than any other method. Eat and drink. And by the way, that's in the new book. just came out this week. 
We have a topic on coffee and hospitality and how to reach uh, Muslim people through hospitality. Uh, so, Chris, are you allowed to ask a question? Did you check with me? Okay. Go ahead. Basically, they invite them into their homes. Uh, there's, a, there's a huge ministry in Cal, Cal State Fullerton uh, that's reaching out to the Chinese scholars and the professors. So it, it can be done. Yeah, it's, yeah I, I can talk to you a little about yeah. that. But, but, but I, again, I'm going to say think hospitality first. Don't see them as an object of conversion. Think of them as somebody that God's created that needs to be feel, uh, fulfilled in Christ and then start having hospitality with them and build relationships and friendships and don't be hostile. And I would say don't even get into a, a debate, apologetic debate on my religion is better than your religion. It just doesn't really – I mean, it's, it's got its place, but start with hospitality. Others, what, what are you guys going to do? Uh, oh, go ahead. So I think I heard you say, say it again. So. Yeah, go to the Everett Centers rather than the isolated villages. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the urban centers, you know, urbanization is a big deal in 21st century mission now. The majority of people are living in urban centers now. But we in the West for 200 years had the mentality to go to those hinterlands, those isolated villages like Lori and I did. I mean, in the West, that's what you did back then. But the gospel has been planted so much now, and urbanization has changed everything that now everybody who is yet to be reached with the gospel, every culture, every language, is represented in an urban setting. And if this is a good investment of your time, you could connect to way more people, have great, a faster effect uh, in a safer environment and a more uh, conducive to creative strategies in an urban center. And then, as I said before, here's the key. Those people still have their very strong connections to their villages and their areas and their countries. And as they... As, as Christ gets a hold of them and they start to change, they start thinking about their family and they start figuring out how am I going to get this out to my families. Indonesians, there's a lot of Indonesian students here, uh, and when they change, you know, they go back and most of them, a lot of them are Chinese background. Now they go right back and they start sharing the gospel with their extended family. They're the Muslims. Yeah, it's a little more dangerous, but they figure it out. So go to the go to the urban centers and. Uh, formulate a strategy on how you're finding out who's there, where are they from, look at the demographics, uh, and figure out what are you going to do. Now that you have this information, how are you going to target these people? I don't like the term target. How are you going to approach this group? Uh, you can do that here <laughs> in the urban centers here or the suburban centers. Did that help? Or are you looking for something more specific? They're still in communities uh, here, Somalis and Syrians, Pakistanis, Indians. They're still in communities even if they can't go back. And those communities are, I would say, a good place to invest in the community because that's the community that's going to figure out how we're going to get the gospel back to our home area. And they will start doing it through the Internet. They will start doing it through social media. Uh, they'll find ways. So imagine if you're investing in a group like that, uh, you're going to have an uh, exponential growth. And the other mission I told you about, I, 
they were sending one team to one little village for years and had no no results. But I'm going, but, but there, you know, there's millions of them in this urban center about 80 miles away. <laughs> Why don't you go to the urban center? Yes. Thank you. The, the people in the urban area will be effective witnesses to their own people than a Western person would. And that is so true. Because amongst the Muslim population of the Middle East, they say, we don't listen to, we don't listen to white Americans, evangelicals at all, but we totally listen to one of our own who has become a believer. And you have our attention, they would say, one of their own. But to a Western person, we have no credibility because all they see is Hollywood. They see materialism. They see rampant, you know, license and sexual issues. They don't, they don't you know, we're, we're not well branded. <laughs> Others, we're almost done here. I accept your admonishment. <laughs> Thank you. I'm teasing you. It's a good question. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I got started. It wasn't too complicated. I've got two versions. Should I give you the honest one or the, the one for raising financial support? <laughs> the honest one, really, I was, God just started putting it on my heart. You know, I was at Monday Night Bible Study with Jim and Debbie. We were mis- very missions-focused the pastor's wife used to read letters to missionaries. And I was an adventurous young guy, and I was just like, God just started stirring my heart. And then he put me in the cubicle, a county of Orange. <laughs> and I hated the cubicle and uh, freaked me out. And then I had an opportunity to go to Honduras, bring some tools down to some missionaries down there, our church supported. And uh, we drove from Orange County to Honduras, which is, yeah, crazy now that I think about it. But when you're like 22, it's like, whatever, it's like, so we got down there, and uh, on the way there, we were kept running into Bible translators everywhere I went. And then we got to Honduras, and then we found our, our missionary friend in the, in the compo in the middle of central Honduras doing community development work, and his neighbor was a Bible translator with Wycliffe. And so I went to his, he invited us all for dinner, and I sat there, and then the rain started coming, and the rivers rose, and I couldn't, we got trapped there, and these Mayan guys were trapped there. So I had to spend the night with a bunch of Mayan descendants. And then I was looking at him doing Bible translation, and I was just like, I want to do that. I was like, I want to do that. And I went home, and then I said, I want to go to, and I read Peace Child, Lords of the Earth. Oh, I want to go to New Guinea. Yeah, why would you want to go there? I just read a book about martyrdom. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I read uh, all the books I read on martyrdom. Just a young man, you just get emboldened when you read martyrdom. Isn't that weird? Yeah, I'm going. So that's, I wanted, I wanted the adventure and I wanted people to have God's word. That, pure and simple, was it? No, the fundraising side was, <laughs> you know, it was. You know, God just stirred me and I was adventurous and I just went. And I realized as soon as I got there, this is too big for me. Uh, my wife and I realized this is too big for me, too big for us. We, God's, God is here for other purposes. He's going to do his thing. We, we're just going to be humble and let him let him do it. And once you get in a humble position before God, he starts doing fun stuff, and you can't claim glory for anything. So looking back, that's the baby boomer. Yeah, let's go. We don't even think about it. We had one bag. 
Now, millennials are not baby boomers. <laughs> How many millennials are here? Born. You know, if, you know if you're a millennial when you're born. Millennials are not baby boomers, and I've heard people criticize millennials. You're not going out and doing missions like we did it in the good old days. And I'm quietly telling millennials, yeah, don't go. This is why Wycliffe doesn't use me as a speaker. <laughs> Seriously, I was at a Wycliffe event. I was going, no, man, we're not doing it that way anymore. So they didn't sign up too many people that weekend. But made Chris's job harder. I said, look, you're a millennial. God has equipped you perfectly for 21st century mission. You know, you're smart, you're innovative, you're creative, you, you want to take, tackle problems, you want to be cause-oriented, you don't want long-term commitments, good. If you want a long-term commitment, you shouldn't be in missions. <laughs> it's got to happen fast. It's got to be smart. You know, so just, you know, millennials are all over it. Man, if I could go out, if I could work with a team, if we could solve problems together and we can be creative and use technology, get this stuff done, I'm all over that. That's what millennials I've heard and read about are kind of like that. I don't know about you guys, but. So uh, if you're a millennial, you're totally well-suited for 21st century mission. Uh, I, I guarantee you, God's prepared you. Uh, it's not a time for baby boomers. We just, you know, pontificate in front of churches and like I'm doing. So. <laughs> Maybe one more, then we'll, then we'll end because I'm sure you're hungry. No, we're over time. <laughs>